Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's show is Dame Gillian Beer, talking about her memoir, Stations Without Sounds. We'll hear from Michelle Paver too. She'll be talking about Skin Taker, the latest in her Wolf Brothers series for young adults. And David Anand will be chatting about how Cambridge United inspired his debut novel, Peter Down. But first of all, a welcome to the programme, Gillian. Thank you. Lovely to have you here. We'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But you're the first dame we've had on the show in uh, eight years or so. You became a dame in 1998, I believe. Yes, that's right. Quite a long time ago now. Was it a surprise? A complete surprise. I mean, I hadn't been anything. I hadn't been sort of MBE or OBE or any of those other possible things that usually go up the ladder. So this came out of blue. And in fact, I was in the United States and my husband emailed me to say, there's a letter here that says it's from the prime minister. Do you want me to read it to you? And so that was how how I heard about it, because they are minded to suggest to the queen, I think, or minded to say to the queen, you have to accept before the queen actually offers it to you. And has it changed anything for you? Are are you entitled to anything special as a dame? No, nothing. And I felt it was hard on my husband because if I had been a man and made a knight, so I would have been sir, then you become lady. But with him, it didn't change his status at all. But that didn't worry him because he was a professor and that was quite enough for him. Thank you. And I'm sure it has changed things. You can never track quite how. I mean, I'm sure there are some invitations I've had that I might not have had if I hadn't had that. But which they are, I've no idea. And we're going to hear your first choice of music in in just a moment. Is music important to you, Gillian? It is very important, yes. One of the real privations of this last 18 months has been not going to concerts, live concerts. And of course, live concerts need live audiences because all the resonances change when you're there all of you together in the concert hall, and just having other people there. I have been to one since in a church, and that was wonderful to hear that fullness of the voices. So I'm looking forward to that very much. And your first choice is Peggy Lee's version of Oh, What a Beautiful Morning from Oklahoma. Why this one? It came out, the play came out in 1943 when I was a child, And I loved it. It was so full of resilience and hope and pleasure. I didn't altogether like the man who sang it. It was a very stentorian noise. And so I was delighted when some years later, I heard her version, which is more jazzy, more free-spirited. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. That was Oh, What a Beautiful Morning by Peggy Lee, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Professor Dame Gillian Beer. Gillian was the King Edward VII Professor of English Literature at the University of Cambridge from 1994 until her retirement in 2002 and is a former president of Clare Hall College. 
She's twice been a judge for the Booker Prize, the second time as chair. She's been on the board of the Writers' Centre Norwich and Arts Council England East. Her most intensive literary criticism lies in the field of Victorian studies, with examinations of Darwinist thinking in Victorian novels and essays on Virginia Woolf. Her memoir, Stations Without Signs, is out this month. A short series of reflections, it focuses on growing up during the Second World War and her experiences as an evacuee. And I must say, I enjoyed it very much. My goodness, it is short, Gillian. I think it's about 35, 40 pages long, but it's intense. The obvious question, why did you decide to write it? Well, I was encouraged by my friend Daphne Astor, who runs this little press called Hazel Press. And various friends had suggested to me that I should write a memoir, but they always suggested it in terms of, you know, my long career and all the things that had happened and so on. And I just... ah, somehow winced away from that. I didn't want to do that. But then, well, Daphne said to me, why don't you just write a little piece? And I thought, well, that might be possible. I said, no, no, I'm feeling much too lazy. I'm not doing any writing of that kind. And then, of course, uh, about a week later, I sat down and started writing it. And I wrote it in about a week, 10 days, as you can tell, because it's really essay length. But it allowed me to bring together both my experiences as a young child And this very late experience I'd had in my 70s, where unknown cousins appeared in my life and told me a lot of things I just hadn't known about my own background and so on. So it managed to merge two aspects of the way I'd grown up. I grew up with a single mother and a banished father, and this brought some of that back into focus. And it's written as a sort of series of fragments, if you like. Hmm. Uh, Why did you decide to do it that way? I wanted to write about the people by whom I was surrounded, because I think when you're a young child, a lot of your life is other people. So there were these boys called Edward and Albert, who were the evacuees at the farm. Well, we used to go for our holidays five miles from where we lived. That was always a great event because there were no cars, of course. So there was one taxi locally and we'd get into the taxi and we'd be taken to the farm. And it was another world suddenly from the little village where I was usually living. And then I also wanted to write about Frey and Mary Bryce, who were the family in whose house my mother and I lived throughout that period from when I was seven to when I was 12. So really a whole lifetime of experience. Frey was a bricklayer. Mary's stayed at home and looked after us all. There were two boys, there was me, my mother, and we lived a semi-separate life, but we completely depended on that arrangement with this other family, and we were very close to them. Though I always called them Mr. and Mrs. Bryce till many years later when I was allowed to move on to Frey and Mary. How easy was it for you to access those memories and those feelings and those, I was going to say characters, but they're people, of course, real people? Yes, they are real people. When I started, they came springing through. I found it very easy to write the first sections, which were about the farm, the Chilcots who lived on the farm, the Bryces, the boys. And then I I was rather more reflective about the section I thought was going to be simply about food. And in a way it is, because, of course, that was one of the things I shared with all the other people locally, you know. But it was also about companionship, about being an only child of a single parent and those other features of life in that way. And I wrote that a bit more slowly. But as I say, really, having thought I hadn't got anything I wanted to put on paper, once I started, I found there were 
all these images coming to my aid. And I didn't want to write anything long. I wanted it to be like little haikus, if you like, just moments of recollection, feelings that had come back and so on. And how did you keep that real? Because obviously we're talking about memories from some time back. And as time goes on, we know we have a tendency to make it a narrative. How did you try and keep it? It feels very real, very genuine. How did you get back into those moments? One of the things is that your senses are so alert when you're a child. And one of the joys now I find in old age is that with luck, your senses remain alert. And so you can find your way back to remembering the sound of the front door, how it sounded when it went, there was a big bang it gave when it shut us all in together. The sound of the creatures on the farm, the squeals of a terrified rabbit, which I start with. All these different sounds, and then the smells, the sights, the cream, for instance, in the dairy, gradually, gradually being brought together the smells of the smoke from the very, very slow fire over which it had been coddled. That was what I found I was able to evoke. Once I had those, then the whole thing flowed together. And you talk about your upbringing there, your parents' relationship, being raised by your mother. There's a line in the book that says, uneasy memories stay folded. And I wondered how many you unfolded and how many you kept folded. Well, of course, I kept a great many folded, but I found that quite easily some unfolded for me that I had kept close to my chest once I was doing it in this form where I was imagining myself being myself as a child again to some degree. So it was that congruity between being old and being a child. They're both positions of risk, if you like. You have to be quite dependent on other people in some ways in both conditions. And I think that does allow your sensory feelings to flare up much more. And your mother and grandmother, you mentioned uh, earlier, and they are clearly big figures in the book and big figures in your life, massive influences on you. Completely. And my grandmother, who was left at the end of the First World War with her young husband dead, in fact, of cancer rather than a bomb or anything, and these two little girls to bring up. The thing I also wanted to bring out is how closely we all live in history, in the moment we're born into, so that for her the conditions were poverty, extreme poverty. She went out and she did sewing for people, she did laundry, she did whatever came available to keep the family going. In the same way, my mother, when she started teaching, had to stop teaching as soon as she got married because In the early 1930s, the London County Council wouldn't employ married women teachers. And then she went back to teaching the moment it was permitted when I was three and a half. Those conditions, the conditions which really shift how you think about class, we have sort of clear or some clear ideas about what are the working classes, but that becomes much more muted and troubled when you get back beyond the welfare state, because you really could so easily slip through into total penury then. And did you, looking back on these memories, did you, if you hadn't already, see how they influenced your life, how they influenced who you became? Yes, that's interesting. I think I hold on to them very vividly, 
and to that degree, they've always been a, something I've needed. How did they change my life? Well, one thing was that when I was a child, my mother was bent on me getting a very good education and succeeding academically because she saw that that was the one way that this little village girl was going to make her way through life because I was a clever little girl. To that extent, it did push me in a certain direction. Then that filled out when I was an adult with a great deal of music making and friends. Friends are very important to me. Because of having been an only child, friends have always been very important to me. And the love of language and books, that was yes. seemed to be something that was a companion. It was. That was my companion because I didn't have little siblings, you know. Books, when I was sort of from about seven on, were very close companions. And I talk about one in this little memoir, which were these stories about a little girl who was a bear, equally both, called Mary Plain. She doesn't know, but she was called Mary Plain because somebody said, isn't Mary Plain? But she is always always exuberant, always determined to win out, always puzzled in among all these adults that she's surrounded by, doesn't really understand what's going on, and yet makes her own world within it. And I found her a very comforting companion. Thank you, Gillian. You've led me very nicely onto Michelle Paver. She's writing for young adults. So had you been uh, growing up these days, you would have been reading her, no doubt. She's one of those rare writers whose success spans novels for adults and novels for children. Adult readers will know her from Dark Matter, Thin Air and Wakenhurst, the latter of which was chosen by The Times as its historical fiction book of the month. To younger readers, she'll be more familiar as the author of the Wolf Brothers series of novels, which has sold over 3 million copies worldwide and been translated into 36 languages. Skin Taker, the eighth in the series, came out last month. And when I spoke to Michelle, I asked her if there was crossover between the way she wrote for the two different readerships or whether they were very separate sides to her writing mind. It really feels like it's just one mind (laughs) and it all comes from the unconscious. I think it's because Dark Matter, Thin Air, Wakenhurst, they're all adult gothic stories, you know, ghosts, spirits, demons, whatever. And then the so-called children's books, you know, the Wolf Brother books, of which Skin Taker is the latest, set in the Stone Age. There are lots of spirits and demons in there, too. It's an interest in the wild and the possibilities of what the brain does. The Wolf Brother books are mostly for children, but it doesn't feel that different to me. And yes, that that sense of paranormal, something that clearly interests you, is it always? Oh, yes. I grew up in a house which was, my bedroom overlooked the parish church, which had a a graveyard which was three feet higher than street level because of all the bodies been buried there since Saxon times. And as a bloodthirsty little 10-year-old, I thought that was rather interesting. So I loved ghost stories. And I remember, you know, lying awake in a cold sweat when I was scared by one ghost story and being really pleased by that, thinking, wow, that's what a story can do. Um, We talked about the difference there between your writing for adults and your Mm. writing for younger people. Uh, Younger people, it tends to be the series, whereas the adults are standalone novels. Are there different qualities, different skills as a writer you need for that? Yes, I think so. The thing about a series is that you know that, well, if you don't have time to deal with that particular aspect of a character or something, well, there's always another book to come. 
And so that lets you breathe a little bit more freely. Whereas in a standalone, like, you know, Wakenhurst, everything you want to say, you need to say in that book. But that's not to say that, you know, you're trying to cram it all in, because obviously that the primary thing is to keep the reader turning the pages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you can't leave any loose threads, which I guess in a series you can, because you can pick them up later on. That's true. You, you can't leave loose threads. And sometimes it's really fun, like in, in Skin Taker, that have been things that I've been able to use, you know, it's set in the Stone Age. I've always wanted to make something of those sort of handprints on cave walls in red ochre. Never quite got there, but then I had an idea, you know, which came into the plot naturally. So that sort of thing is fun. But, uh, you know, one must always avoid, whether you're writing for children or grown-ups, getting stuff in. I do loads of research in the field and everything, you know, have files and files of it. But, you know, you can only just put in the odd line or something to bring the story alive. That's the purpose of it. You know, these books, whether they're for grown-ups or or children, they're not history lessons. You know, I try to be accurate, but they are entertainment. (laughs) And eight books in, are you still finding things in the research that are still inspiring you? Oh, tremendously. I mean, this is the thing that I didn't know when I started with Wolf Brother, you know, the first of the Wolf Brother books. And I should say that, you know, Skin Taker is a standalone. You don't have to have read the other ones. But yes, when I first did my research into hunter-gatherers, you know, it's set 6,000 years ago, I think I thought they would be pretty much all the same. I mean, I did a lot of research in archaeology, but also then in sort of traditional more recent hunter-gatherers, the Inuit, the Chukchi in Siberia, how do they think and feel? And every single one is completely different from the others. (laughs) So for Skin Taker, I did some research in Alaska and British Columbia, talking to the First Nations people, the Haida, the Kwakwakawak, very different beliefs about wolves, for example, you know, wolves, very important in the books. So, yes, I've got far more material than I could ever use. How does that affect your world building? Because did you do all that right at the beginning? Are you still world building now? No, I did some research into archaeology and hunter-gatherers thinking for Wolf Brother, the first book. But with each book, Torak, the hero, and Ren, the heroine, and Wolf, of course, they discover a different part of their world. And with that, a different clan. And a different way of looking. So, you know, in the third book, it was the far north. That was very Inuit based. Then you've got the water, water world of the fourth book and then the mountains. So, no, I keep discovering new aspects, new interesting things that I like, if possible, to get in. Although, sadly, some of the most interesting ones. I mean, on my recent research trip, I tried out a Native American cure. This was in Alaska for toothache. You lick a certain kind of slug. Yeah, yeah. You pick it up off the rainforest and you lick it. So I did. The slug survived, I might say, and was fine. We put it back and it worked. My mouth went numb for about 20 minutes. But dang, now I haven't been able to get it into the books. You know, something hasn't arisen. (laughs) So there will be a character at some stage with toothache, presumably. There isn't. I can tell you, no, it's not going to be, because it just hasn't. That's the sort of thing you can't do, you know. So there's loads and loads of interesting little nuggets, but then occasionally you'll find something and you think, oh, yes, I can use that in the story. It's got to be part of the story, otherwise it looks tacked on. Particularly, you know, when you're writing for children, 10 to 12-year-olds is the sort of key readership for the Wolf Brother books. They want to be entertained. I'm not trying to preach to them. I'm not trying to teach them. No, I'm trying to entertain. They're tough critics, aren't they? They will notice if something is not consistent. Oh, absolutely. Some of them read 
all of the Wolf Brother books every year, so they're more expert than I am on sort of continuity aspects. Well, you know, if Torak had a greenstone axe in book four, where's that gone and everything? So that's something I have to keep careful tabs on. Yeah, this has been such an immensely successful series for you, Michelle. Uh, what is it about the series, do you think, that has really captured the imagination? It's a simple story in a way. I mean, it's a complicated world, but, you know, Wolf Brother starts off boy, girl, wolf, bear, forest. Pretty simple elements. I think a lot of children and adults would love to be more at one with nature, as hunter-gatherers are, and they love to have a wolf as a friend, particularly as a child. I mean, I wanted to have a wolf as a friend. I wanted to be able to talk to wolves, and parts of the story are told through wolves' point of view. And that perhaps is the appeal. The worldwide aspect, I genuinely didn't expect. And I think that comes from the fact that we were all hunter-gatherers once. You know, whether you're Chinese or Australian or American, we were all hunter-gatherers once. Wolves are very well known across the world, so they exist in every culture's folklore. But that's all background. Perhaps the appeal is that the characters are ones that people want to spend time with. You know, you can do all the archaeological and anthropological research you like, but ultimately it boils down to a good story. And the message now as well of connecting with nature, finding refuge there, perhaps that's something particularly now that is resonating with readers. That aspect of hunter-gatherer life certainly does resonate. I mean, I should make clear, I don't write with a message. I really don't. I think that's actually the quickest way to kill a story. You know, you turn your characters into sort of wooden pegs on which you hang your particular beliefs or whatever. But having said that, yes, I wrote about hunter-gatherers because I think it's an amazing mindset. And the more I've spoken to people who live in traditional ways, the more amazing it is. Up in the Arctic, you know, in a howling gale, minus 50 degrees, and they're quite capable of building a shelter and living off the land in a way that, you know, I frankly would not be able to. They have huge respect in a non-preachy way for the natural world because they depend on it very, very directly. So, for example, when, you know, watching a, an Inuit man kill a seal for survival, he would use every part of the animal. And they feel honour bound still to use every part of the animal. You don't waste because that's disrespectful to your environment. So, yeah, I think that has resonated. Today's sort of 10 to 12 year olds seem to know an awful lot about the environment. And they like that aspect, even if they're vegetarian using all the bits of the animal if, if you have to kill it and uh, respecting the forest. My goodness me, Michelle, you're game, aren't you? You talk about licking a <laughs> slug there and watching a seal being slaughtered. What, what's the strangest experience you've had? What, apart from licking the slug? <laughs> <laughs> can, you, can you beat that one? <laughs> oh, well, apologies to anyone who's listening to this when, when they're eating. But yeah, raw seal liver. That You see, I do this sort of thing because it's surprising. You always get surprises. I'd eaten a bit of raw seal blubber to me, it was horrible. It stuck to the roof of my mouth and I felt sick for about two days after. But the raw seal liver was actually quite nice. It was sort of jellyish and sweet and it slipped down really easily, probably because it was covered in blood. And I did that because traditionally among the Inuit, they would each eat a piece of the raw liver when they were out hunting. And that was a sort of thanking the animal for giving its body to them. But that was a surprise. It was fun. I mean, the best bit was swimming with wild killer whales. That was the most transcendent, fantastic and then, of course, making friends with wolves has been quite fun. But that was closer to home in Berkshire, in a wolf sanctuary. <laughs> Pleased to hear it. And yes. all these amazing experiences, how have they affected you as a writer and a person? Well, as a writer, it's made me very aware from the first research trip that I don't just get accuracy from research trips. I get ideas. 
for skin taker. I knew caves were going to be important, so I went down some caves in Gloucestershire, the Royal Forest of Dean, the Clearwell Caves. I'd been down caves before, but I got so many ideas. That's what I've learned from research, to not set your story in stone before you go, because it's going to change. Being there, it's a completely different feeling from just reading about it. And that's really why I do it. It's not just to be accurate, but it's the aim is to make the reader feel that they are living the adventure with Tarak and Ren and Wolf. And I feel that if I've done as much as I can of what my characters have done, then I can perhaps make the reader feel they're there. And Skin Taker by Michelle Paver is published by Zephyr. We're talking on Bookmark today to Dame Gillian Beer about her memoir, Stations Without Sounds. And Michelle, they're talking about having to tie up loose ends in the series of novels, can't leave any loose ends in a standalone. For a memoir, there is that need to tie up some loose ends, but you can leave others because life is like that, isn't it? Yes, and that was one of the pleasures that I didn't want to do the aha and then this will happen effect at all. I wanted it to be, in that sense, coherent, almost autonomous, really a sort of jeweled inscription of what it might be like to be alive and a child. But at the same time, of course, there were all these things that escaped, like some of the sadder things in the last two sections I talk about, my parents' marriage and the difficulties. A lot of those were known to me only in my mid-70s, when my unknown Canadian cousins got in touch with me. And there's a very complicated love story involved there, a poignant love story, which I was half aware of as a child. My mother's lover, who had left for Canada to get an education and was always going to come back. And she waited and waited for him to come back. And then eventually she and his younger brother fell in love and got married instead. So far as... I, as a child, knew that was it. But my cousins were able to give me a lot more insight into what had happened to both those brothers later in their lives, which was fascinating and, I think, quite helpful for me. And very moving at the end that you find this whole new family of you who had always wanted to have a sibling. Suddenly there Mm. you were, lots of cousins Mm. and a whole new family. Yes, That's been a great gain, just a pure pleasure, knowing all these Canadian cousins. And we've spent time there, they've spent time with us. They're just around in the the sort of hinterlands of one's life. It's lovely. Because growing up, it it seems very blunt. Your father left the war, your parents never lived together again after that. And and then your mother married your father's brother, and that was didn't turn out so well. I think you say in the memoir, as I grew up, I had no wish to know anything about my father. He was simply gone from my life. It's all very final and black and white, which I suppose it can be for children. Yes. I didn't feel different from other children, particularly because here we were in the middle of the war. Most people's fathers were away in the forces. So that when my father went, he went into the army. So I understood entirely what had happened. It was the war. My father was in the army. And the question about whether he would ever come back was moot and wasn't really ever talked about. One of the nicest things he did was to give me this beautiful copy of Hans Andersen's stories when I was seven. That had these wonderful illustrations by Edmund Dulac. And that book, to me, was, was, as it were, the enhancement that he had been able to offer me. 
all these strange, sad, really quite cruel stories. They meant a lot to me when I was a child. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Schubert's Octet in F major. Why this one? Well, I could have had all Schubert for all my music choices. He's been a mainstay for me. When I was 19, I went and lived in Austria for six months and learned German. I was with this very musical family and everybody would sing as they did the tours around the house and we'd sing rounds. I went to a great many concerts. They, were, they would have people visiting who always brought their instruments with them. And there was that easy sense of music as being part of the household. And I started to hear Schubert then. And he's always stayed so close to me. And his terrible, some of the terrible stories in his sequences like Winterreiser and so on taught me very early on what it feels like to undergo isolation, rejection. Mercifully, I hadn't had that experience really feelingly as a child. Okay, my father left, but my mother was very securely there. But it was obviously there and in some way in my experience, in my youth. So Schubert fills up a lot of those spaces and he's just a wonderfully varied writer and composer. In this octet, I love the combination of wind and strings. That was what made me choose this in particular. Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. And we're talking today on Bookmark to Dame Gillian Beer about her memoir, Stations Without Sounds. Gillian, before the music there, we were referencing the effect of war on your upbringing, your parents' separation. You described the war very vividly, the memory of wearing gas masks, hearing enemy aircraft overhead, the very real fear of invasion, a unique time. Yes, that was something that as a child you sort of half took for granted, but you knew that we had been sent down to where we'd landed up in Somerset to get away from immediate danger, but everybody knew that the Germans might arrive. And that's why I've called it Stations Without Signs, because when my mother was taking the evacuated children away, they all had to gather at Paddington. They didn't know where they were going, and she always used vividly to recall how they went on this long, long, long train journey. And as they passed station after station, the names of the stations had been taken down with a rather naive idea of slowing down the Germans' advance when they invaded. And I have to say that it was actually one of my sons who suggested this title brilliantly, because he said, well, it tells in on quite a lot of what happened to you in those days. And so I thought, yes, that's right. These stations without signs are what children also have. They have to find their way through whole landscapes that are unfamiliar. And if you're an evacuated child, all the more so. 
and that period post-war as well. You say after the war was the magic place where all wishes could be granted. Yes, after the war, I was always, I was surrounded by this, oh, well, after the war, we will do this, that and the other. And it was both within the household and in the school and in the whole society. Everything would be transformed, as to some degree it was, because when Attlee's government came in, First of all, in, 1840, in 1944, we'd had the Education Act. And then in 46, we started the health service. And these were immense changes. And to live through that was wonderful. So I do know that changing a government can change a society. And that's always been very important to me. And how did it feel connecting with your younger self through this turbulent time of your life, your parents and the war, post-war? Well, it's paradoxical, but I don't remember it as particularly turbulent. I remember it as a period of, yes, of something. It was intensely local, that's the thing, that everything was just in the five-mile horizon. If I quarreled with a friend, that was far more (laughs) extreme for me than what might be happening with the Germans coming over the horizon, you know. But it did also, in those more general ways, teach me quite a lot. I talk in the memoir about this camp that there was up the hill and how you'd either have white troops there or you'd have black troops with white officers. And that reality of the apartheid that was being maintained in the United States at the time was such a shock locally. So in a lot of ways, that was a very enlarging knowledge and prospect for me as a child. But on the whole, it was all very, very local. And of course, if you got into a railway carriage, it said, careless talk costs lives. So you had to be very careful outside your immediate circles. We've mentioned before you're talking about real people, real places, the responsibility you must have felt or perhaps didn't towards Mm. conveying them. This is your memories of them as a young child. So whether they were really like that is is a different Mm. issue, I suppose, and, and how you decide which line you're going to tread. Yes, sometimes I think I indicate in what I've written that I'm not quite sure whether the memory is mine or someone else's. They're all certainly mine, but some of them are deflected memories. But it's very much part of the whole fulcrum of memories for me of what it meant to be alive then and how to know loss when it came then, because we were subject to so many losses So everything is shaped by the society you're in, the group of people you live in, the time you live in. You can't avoid that. Thank you, Gillian. Well, that's led me nicely to our next guest, David Annam. David has written for The Telegraph, The FT and Literary Review. His debut novel, Peterdown, came out earlier this year. GQ called it madcap, hugely rich and entertaining. And The Times said of it, few novels quite match David Annan's debut, so enjoyable to read, the deft and humorous telling of people trying to muddle through modern life. When I chatted to David, I started by asking him to tell me what the novel is about. Peter Down is named after the fictional city in which it's set. The novel starts 
And this is in the alternate universe that the book's set in. Gatwick and Heathrow have been shut and a massive new five-runway airport in the Thames estuary has been opened, the London Avalon. A Japanese-style bullet train has been built to link the airport up to the regions. Lots of towns competed to be the site of the splitter station, so one branch of the line will go off to Manchester, the other will continue up to Newcastle and Edinburgh. Plucky little Peter down one. At the start of the novel... A shortlist of three buildings in central Peterdown is announced, one of which will have to be demolished to make way for the station. And they are the Larkspur Hill Housing Estate, a brutalist masterpiece from the 1970s, Peterdown United's crumbling but charismatic Chapel Stadium, which may or may not have been partly inspired by the many hours I spent standing on the Newmarket Road end as a teenager and The Generator, which is a new labour mixed-use art space. And the two main characters are Colin, the sports correspondent for the Peterdown Evening Post. He's very keen, obviously, to save the stadium. And his partner, Ellie, who is a North London architect who lives in Peterdown and hates pretty much everything about the place, apart from the Larkspur Hill housing estate, which was designed by her architectural hero. So, yes, you mentioned uh, the football team might have a passing resemblance to Cambridge United. What about Peterdown itself? I mean, how much of this is Cambridge? Peterdown couldn't be more different from Cambridge. Peterdown's heritage is an old train-building hub. Back in its heyday from the middle of the 19th century till about the 60s, 70s, it knocked out carriages and rolling stock... They built the tracks there. This was a great kind of industrial centre that has fallen on hard times. You can kind of work out roughly where it might be in the country, but it's never specified because I didn't really want it to be somewhere that you looked at and said, oh, it's a fictionalised version of wherever. I wanted it to stand in for all kinds of different places where the work that used to define the town or the city no longer exists. So that could be in the Clyde Valley, it could be in South Wales, it could be all across the north of England, it could be in the Ruhr Valley in Germany or the Basque Country in Spain, or it could be all over the Rust Belt in America. There are all these places where the work that defined a place no longer exists and we need to construct a different kind of identity and a different kind of purpose for those places in the absence of these big factories or shipyards or whatever it was that were these places of mass employment, one of the things that frequently provides a great sense of community cohesion and town identity is the success or failure of the local sports team. And certainly in Europe and particularly in Britain, that would be a football team rather than anything else. I'm very interested in ideas of work and play and they are all explored in the book. You did grow up here, though. I mean, Cambridge I did grow is... up in Cambridge. I did grow up in Cambridge. So Peterdown is nothing like Cambridge, which has got its very fixed sense of itself in the world and obviously doesn't have any industrial heritage. But it does have a football stadium, which is thoroughly unmodernised and <laughs> is very similar. I went recently to how it was when I used to watch John Beck's fantastic, but not particularly aesthetically pleasing, football side charge up the uh, leagues in the early 90s. So Cambridge United Abbey Stadium, partly inspiration for this novel. I'm just wondering if that's the first, if Cambridge United has inspired any other novels. I don't know if it has, but it has another literary connection in that the young Nick Hornby taught at Parkside, where I went to school, and he 
used to spend some time on the terraces at Cambridge United because he couldn't get to Arsenal. And Parkside, in the film version of Fever Pitch, the team Colin Firth's school team plays is called Parkside. And is this also a, a comment as as well as on sort of modernisation and housing and planning? Is this also a comment about football and how that's changed over the last 20, 30 years? The genesis of the book was about 10 years ago, my boss at the time, who was an Arsenal season ticket holder, couldn't go to the game. And so he gave his tickets to me and I took a friend. Me and my friend had grown up watching lower league football. This was the first time either of us had been to a Premier League game for a very long time. We went to the Emirates and we were both amazed at this anarchic, joyful, exuberant, slightly unhinged thing of our youth had turned so completely into the corporate entertainment experience in this big stadium with absolutely no atmosphere whatsoever and geared towards selling you this incredibly expensive hot dog. At the same time, lots of things were happening Wimbledon had just been moved to Milton Keynes. The green and gold anti-glazer protests at Old Trafford had just peaked and FC United of Manchester had just been set up. And the fact there were lots of things that football, for all it is, a site of neoliberal capitalism running amok in its most steroidal and insane way. Football is also a place where there are existing networks of people, it's a place of mass congregation. It has the potential to be this kind of site of resistance. And we've seen that a bit with the aborted attempt to set up the European Super League and how quickly the fans were able to stop that. At one point in the book, one of the characters says, you know, football and housing, England's two abiding fascinations. These are both things in which we see how the market just doesn't work. Therefore, they're places where there might be possible forms of resistance. And have you had any reaction from Cambridge United? Did they know? Cambridge United tweeted, I'd ran a competition. I've actually extended because I had so few entries and none of them were right. I have given 12 characters in the book the surnames of my all-time Cambridge United first 11 plus the manager. And it's a 4-3-3 formation. Most of them come from the sort of 89 to 91 team. A couple of them don't. If anyone could work it out and they go to my website they can enter and they I've done a series of limited edition book plates there's some at Heifers and there's even more at the Ely branch of Topping and I have held back a very special Cambridge United one there were not many Cambridge United stickers to be found but I've got Steve Spriggs who was a great hero at the Abbey even before I started watching so if anyone can get the formation correctly they will win the Steve Spriggs book plate and do you think football follows the changes in society or do you think football can lead society in its changes? I'm just wondering how much of a reflection of society it is or whether people take values from football, which is obviously a national sport. Football both leads and reflects the wider changes that are going on in society. Everything exists in the same ecosystem and you have the general mood and football has been an exemplar of that, of the kind of rampant individualism and the corrosion of community organisations and this this intensely hierarchical society we find ourselves in increasingly. Football has also followed that very similar pattern where you have insane riches at the top and then clubs going bust all over the place at the bottom. But football also, I think, has the potential to be something that can be a real force for change. The incredible eloquence and conviction 
of many of the current England team, Raheem Sterling and Rashford, obviously, has been exemplary. Patrick Bamford's a very interesting young man that says lots of very wise things. But it's not just that. If you look back to the impact of Jurgen Klinsmann, no one has done more to change British attitudes to the Germans than Klinsmann. When he came over here, there was a great deal of ignorance about modern Germans. And Klinsmann was this multilingual, sophisticated, with his wonderful flowing blonde hair and and he was just such a fantastic charismatic player and I think that that shifted and then Klopp Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool who is one of the most charismatic men in the country has really reinforced that and those things are significant football is definitely a place where change can happen and what's next for you then I mean this novel got great reviews what what's next I have told my agent and my editor that I will finish the second novel by the end of next year. We'll see what happens <laughs> on that front. That may or may not happen. And, uh, and my final question, how are the U's going to do this season? When I came of age, I got stupidly used to us flying up promotion after promotion, but I think this year, steady consolation, just don't go back down, and that would be a definite win. And Peter Down by David Anand is published by Corsair. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Dame Gillian Beer about her memoir, Stations Without Signs, published by Hazel Press. Gillian, writing your own memoir, you've been immersed in the world of literature virtually all your life and taught and written about it. Writing your own memoir, did it make you feel differently about some of the memoirs that you've studied and taught? Yes, I think for one thing it impressed me with how people are able to keep their whole lives in a coherent pattern. The other thing it made me realise is how often it is the childhood of people in memoirs. So I felt I'd privileged myself, in a sense, by only writing about my childhood instead of all the boring sequences I might have chosen for my later life. You know, something like Edmund Goss's Father and Son, such a brilliant evocation of what it's like to be a child and to be in a strong relationship with one parent. This is a beautiful book. We ought to say all Hazel Press books are absolutely beautiful. What are your hopes for this memoir? Well, one hope is that some other people who are roughly in my age group, I mean, I'm now 86, but anybody who lived in the war will have some of their memories started up again, will feel, oh, yes, it was a rich time. It wasn't all depletion, because when you look back on it, you look back on the ruins. But we did live through it fully. And so that's certainly one thing I hope that some people, some older people will read it. I'm glad that my sons and their families have read it and enjoyed it. I hope that it will make its way quietly in among a whole range of recollections and will make us all think about how how lucky we are to have our senses living still with us, in us which allow us to access these distant events with all the immediacy that otherwise we couldn't possibly encounter. And a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark is, what are you reading at the moment? Claire Keegan, the Irish writer, she's got a new novel about to come out called Small Things Like These and a wonderful novel that is out already called Foster. They're very short. 90 pages to 120 pages. 
They're absolutely full. I'm so enjoying reading them. In fact, I am going to interview her for the Cambridge Literary Festival, and I'm very much looking forward to meeting her. Thank you, Gillian. We'll come back to you in a moment for your final mm. piece of music. But a heads up, our next show, our featured guest is Danny Atkins talking about her novel, A Sky Full of Stars. We'll hear from Jan Todd on her novel, Jane Austen and Shelley in the Garden. And Dr. Brigitte Steiger and Anna Alice Rees will talk about Beyond Kauai, a collection of essays reflecting on life in modern day Japan. But we'll sign out now with your last choice of music, Gillian, which is at the railway station Upway from Winter Words by Benjamin Britten. Why this one? I'll very quickly read you the poem because the poem is part of it. There is not much that I can do for I have no money that's quite my own, spoke up the pitying child, a little boy with a violin at the station before the train came in. But I can play my fiddle to you and a nice one tis and good in tone. The man in handcuffs smiled. The constable looked and he smiled too as the fiddle began to twang. And the man in the handcuffs suddenly sang with grimful glee, this life so free is the thing for me. And the constable smiled and said no word, as if unconscious of what he heard. And so they went on till the train came in, the convict and boy with the violin. Seems to me the most wonderful image of kindness, everybody's kindness, and this, the power of art to free you even when you're in prison. There is not much that I can do, for I've no money that's quite my own. So, <laughs> 